Ray. Ray. Hi, Dave. How you doing, man? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Well, 30 days, really. We've been doing this monthly, and it's uh, been fantastic. Oh, yeah. Last time we just talked to each other because we're so mutually fascinating. But uh... <laughs> No, we're mutually fascinated with the same subjects. Well, I guess that's right. But uh, yeah, so uh, life has been going on. It's, it's raining as per usual. I think we had the wettest November uh, for ever. Really? We're, we're ahead of the averages. And um, yeah. So wait, been, Ketchikan normally gets around what, 200 inches of year, uh, rain a year? We're headed for that probably. We we just passed 155 or something last right. month. So we're we're well on our way. So here there, the last what's the month, annual record? What's the record? Well, I think 200 ish. So All yeah, right. man. In a year. Go, go. Yeah. Well, uh, it's the first week of December, and I'm in Ojai, Southern California. And it's basically. No rain and blue skies. And you have a new friend in the house. I have a new friend. I got a brand new dog, Bernie. He's part Bernie. Yeah, Bernie. Don't say He's... his name too. Don't say it too loud, man. Yeah. Bernie's right the, there. Because the neighbors. Oh, he can't hear me. Bernie That's... is a part Bernese mountain dog, Rottweiler and Lab Mix. And he's really kind and gentle and well-trained and... I taught him to roll over today. It only took three attempts. Really? Yeah. So he's a rescue dog. How he's old a is Bernie? Dog. He's a year and a half. So oh, well, okay. hopefully I've got a good decade with him. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show, Bernie. We might be hearing from him later. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> we'll see how... he won't be barking. He'll just lay down and, and chill out. <laughs> hey, I wanted, I wanted you to know that I've been working on my narration chops. I want to kind of be like, Morgan Freeman. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know that, where I'm going with that? Yeah, because you're uh, alluding to Loop. Life on, Life our, on planet. our planet. Yes, I, I per your suggestion, I was a naysayer at first. I said, oh, okay, it's on Netflix. Wonderful uh, series, and I finished it last night. And, oh, fantastic. Uh, Life, well, I our, really uh, like how Morgan talks, those traumatic pauses. Well, it's, you know, he's God. God talk. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Our previous guest, Dave Marshall, who is yep. the host of PaleoCast, uh, the pod the paleontological podcast that existed before Paleo Nerds, he has connections with the paleontologists and producers and uh showrunner who you know started this project, Life on Our Planet. And his latest podcast, he has something like 30 separate episodes discussing wow ins and outs of each of the what is it eight or ten part series eight shows eight yeah. series so about eight hours so if you almost. want to drill down into the making of but more essentially the paleontology and research that went in behind the choices they made they said they had so many different animals they couldn't show so many ecosystems they yeah. wanted to show and they like to show but what i loved about this when they showed a crocodilian from the permian they would then show a current crocodile and they would examine the ancient ecosystem and potentially how that animal existed with a current one so you saw this comparison between extinct animals and extant which are animals that are the not living extinct. animals so yeah they would have examples and basically kind of show you the deep time ancestors or relatives or maybe similar lifestyles yeah it was beautifully shot 
And of course, they save a lot of CGI money when they use those. Like, what do you use a lot of modern stuff? But uh, well, no, I think the modern stuff was saying this is how a particular dinosaur could have lived by looking at this animal in the same type of ecosystem, same type of niche. You know right. what I mean? And there's a lot of there's a lot of predator prey interactions. Yes. You know what? I gotta say the paleobotanists got a lot of action in that show. Yeah. And uh, they talked about the forest and the plants, but uh, also some of the things that we've talked about, like the Carnian pluvial event. Remember that one? Wait, we actually minute. talked about that. The Carnian pluvial event. Hold on, hold on. I'm testing pluvial. you, Dave. Okay. It's pluvial. a previous episode. We talked about it. I am a pluviophile. That's why I live in Ketchikan. Oh, rain. Rain, that's right. Rain in Pangaea, where it rained for like uh, 10, 20 million years. A couple million years. And it was in a Triassic. And actually, after this, where it rained around the world for a million plus years, after that, the ecosystem had changed, and that's when dinosaurs kind of rise up. Right. Well, it also here, was so. the uh, invention of the umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> the Bumbershootosaurus. Yeah, I like that yeah. one. And you know what? The other cool thing is that the CGI of the dinosaurs that they depicted is the best and finest to date as far as realism and paleontologically accurate. I, I'm just blown away. Yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, but being the true paleo nerd, there's all these creatures I really wanted to see. So maybe you and I will be called in as consulting experts someday, Dave. That's my dream. Um, I and they'll do everything we want. No, Sorry. come on. We know enough. I have we one year play. of college and I've read a thousand books. So, Well, <laughs> we can play with the big boys, the big uh, uh, the, the adults. You can, Ray. I defer, I defer to you. You defer? All right. So today well, we have an amazing guest and uh, we've kind of talked about this subject and and location several times in the past but we're drilling down into something that i've been asking you i've been saying ray i want to talk mosasaurs and marine reptiles you mentioned mosasaurs a few weeks ago and i went to the guy who knows mosasaurs but also knows how to talk to uh, the general public he's an, an amazing dynamic uh just encyclopedia of everything that happened in the western interior seaway right. the wis that once uh dominated the uh cretaceous north america split america in two mike is the author of many many papers we're talking about mike everhart i'm really looking forward to, to talking to mike yeah well let's get on the old uh paleo phone and uh give him a ring what does the paleo phone sound like dave does it sound like <laughs> oh i yeah. like that Hey, Dave, meet Mike Everhart. He's an adjunct curator of paleontology at the Sternberg Museum in Hayes, Kansas, and author of the book Oceans of Kansas, and co-author of the latest edition of the Roadside Geology of Kansas. It is so good to have you here with us on Paleo Nerds, Mike. Now, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Hey, appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's nice to meet you, Mike. The question is, and we ask all our guests, are you a paleo nerd, and when did it start? You must be. Well, yeah, obviously I'm I'm deep into paleo, but really it started back in the fifth grade when I had a teacher that was a, a rock hound at the time, and she took oh. me as a student to a gem and mineral show, and after that it's history. <laughs> we we went into it um, pretty strongly after that. You uh, you mentioned in one of uh, your interviews that uh, it was a book by Roy Chapman Andrews that kind of got you going in a way too, right? 
Yeah, about the same time, I, I don't know, what was that, 13, 12, 13 years old, I had a book called uh, All About Dinosaurs, and mostly about dinosaurs in Mongolia that Roy Chaplin Andrews was famous for discovering. But there were also two chapters in that book about Kansas marine fossils. Ah. Talked about mosasaurs and plesiosaurs and pteranodon. And after that, I had to go see. And it took me uh, several years, but I got out to the Sternberg Museum and then had a geology class or paleontology class in college that we had a field trip out there. And I collected my first fish bones and shark tooth and things like that. But why okay. marine reptiles rather than, you know, the classic Tyrannosaurus rex? And Well, we don't have very many dinosaurs here in Kansas. Uh, and the ones that uh, we do have either drowned here or died someplace else and wars. Isn't that the famous notosaur? Yeah, uh Nibrosaurus. Um, yeah. but actually which is the kind first of like dinosaur... an Achylosaurus, which what that was yeah. a float and bloat, they think, or float and bloat. The first one that was found here was by O. C. Marsh back in 1871. Oh, that's it was right. Actually a, a small hadrosaur called Cliosaurus. Oh. And um that, that ended up back in Pennsylvania, yeah. I uh, ended up back in uh Connecticut and New Haven, Connecticut, all right. Peabody Museum of Natural History. They went up on the wall and it's been there ever since. So very few people in Kansas know anything about it. But uh, yeah, so that was your interest was really a local thing because you were living in Kansas. That was where the fossils were basically in your backyard. That's why you yeah. really went. Yeah, I was fascinated with the idea that we had marine fossils in the western part of the state. I actually, you know, started collecting uh, shells, I guess, and petrified wood. And then I, oh, about 1964, so I found my first mammoth tooth uh, in a sand pit. And, mm. you know, it's just, I got yeah. fascinated with the fossils and what they meant and how old they were and, you know, cool. Well, you know, I, I kind of share a little bit of the, the similar uh, history and that I came to Kansas in 1968 ended up going to high school there but i had also read roy chapman andrews books as a kid and i was already a dinosaur fanatic and i landed in kansas <laughs> and then in high school and college i finally had the opportunity to get out to western kansas and borrowed a car to get out there and had to go to the fossil fields went to the sternberg and it really wasn't until i came back to kansas in 92 and uh, hooked up with uh, chuck bonner and I finally got to go out into where the fossils really were. And then that just really did it for me. And as you know, I've been drawing a lot of this stuff, but uh, right. yeah. and I've consulted your books. But anyways, we should probably dive into a sea full of monsters. Huh? Shall we do that? Uh, on one of, I was uh, listening to one of your lectures and you were saying, you know, we always talk, talk about the great age of dinosaurs and, and you said, well, you know, really, they're all crowded up on land, and we really ought to call it the great age of marine reptiles. And, and why is that? Why is that? Well, for one thing, in the, in the Mesozoic, the sea levels were changed a lot, but at least during the Cretaceous, the oceans covered 85% or so of the Earth. And so right. all of the dinosaurs that we celebrate were crowded on the 15% of our land area. So the ocean's a huge place and we had all kinds of marine reptiles from begin from the beginning of the tri uh, triassic onward on through the end of the cretaceous huge plesiosaurs uh, ichthyosaurs that died out before 
mosasaurs. And then the, the, the Johnny-come-lately-mosasaurs that didn't get here <laughs> until uh, uh, the early Cretaceous. And then they took over the world. These were amazing animals and, and at some points as big, ever bit as big as maybe everything but the very largest sauropods on land. The when most, did the marine reptiles first appear in the fossil record? Uh, the first ones are the uh, ichthyosaurs in the in the Triassic, early Triassic, and they're followed very shortly by the first plesiosaurs uh, in the and, later Triassic. And the and plesiosaurs then, have the very long neck, right? They didn't have the long necks until very late. I mean, oh. the longest ones, uh, of course, here in, in Kansas, and there's one a new one up and newer one up in um, what is the evolutionary Canada. adaptation that would allow the early ones to have fairly short, stubby necks and then the elongated ones? Is it is Well, it a... I, the question, I suppose, is why did they get have such a long neck? And the only thing we can figure out is that it allowed these animals to swim up under a school of fish in the dark zone and be invisible, more or less, and then reach oh. their, their neck and their jaws up into the, the school and, you know, begin feeding. Well, I was going to say, you know, the, the long necks, there's... The plesiosaurs, and within the plesiosaurs, there's the pliosaurs, the short-necked mm -hmm. plesiosaurs, and then there's the elasmosaurs, which have the elaborately long, long right. necks. They're crazy long. And then there's the polycotylids, I guess, too, right? Easy but, for you yeah. to say. Yeah, easy for me. Polycotylid. Hey, hold on. Well, Come that's, on. that's another short-necked plesiosaur. But let, what I'm, the main question I really want to put to Mike here is, if you have a plesiosaur neck up out of the water and you've drawn it that way, it's it's wrong. And I've been doing that all my life, Mike. Yeah. So I, I sit here embarrassed. Why <laughs> why is why why is that? Why and I want to push well, back maybe a little they bit. They were wait, they were air breathers. All marine yeah. reptiles yeah, were ahead. air breathers. Yeah. And they had to raise their, their head above water to breathe, but that's all they raised above water. Uh they simply didn't well, the neck wasn't flexible enough to to come up like a swan. Right. And sit there, but but they're also to do that. They'd also have to de defy gravity. I mean, you can go in a swimming pool and try to lift a, a board out, you know, in front of you, simulating a long neck, and trying to lift it into the air. It, it keeps coming down. It'll keep pulling you down because right. in your when you're in the water, you're supported. You're more or less weightless. Anything brought out of the water, the neck and head would weigh something, and you can't do it. The other thing is uh, a lot of the early plesiosaur pictures show this snake-like neck. And in fact, I think Cope even referred to them having a, a snake-like neck that could reach up and grab pteranodons out of the air and things like that. But Right. Or the Loch Ness Monster. Right. The famous yeah. picture of the Loch Ness Monster, they say, exactly. was a plesiosaur. Which but is if really you look nice. at their vertebra, they look like spools. They're stacked together and end to end like that and there's no flexibility in them except maybe in the last four or five feet of the, of the neck behind the head there would have been a little flexibility but the ne the long neck itself was just simply held out in front of the animal it was rigid, rigid huh wow and the other thing yeah the other thing you get into when you start moving that neck around in the water that's a perfect rudder i mean it, it'll literally turn your turn your animal as he's swimming he can't swim in a straight huh. straight line and put his neck out to the side Oh, that's interesting. Real quick for our listeners, just describe the marine reptiles that existed in the late Cretaceous. So as far as what do they look like and their basic names? And and don't give me the poly, what did you say, Ray? Polycotylids. Polycotylids. Yeah. Well, uh, so let's start. A mosasaur looks like a giant marine lizard, basically. Yeah, a Komodo dragon with flippers okay. in place of feet. Great. 
and, a, and they're really very close to that. Yeah, yeah. And they and swim then, with their tails. Fairly flexible skull. The, the uh, analogy that Cope uses is that lower jaw, they could literally pull it back because of the joints at your elbows. It literally flexed back like this. So once they grabbed something, they, they didn't tear things up. They grabbed them whole and just basically ratcheted them back into the throat to swallow them. Like the way a snake does, basically. Yeah, exactly. And the skull is very similar. Well, snakes and mosasaurs and Komodo dragons are okay, all well, in the same group. If we're going to be talking about mosasaurs really quickly here, that uh, forked tongue. Do they have well, a forked tongue? <laughs> more than likely. I mean, we, we can't tell, but from what we can see of the, their nervous system and the, and the way that their the nerves come through the, the jaw, lower jaw, it's the same as what we see in the lizards today. Or yeah, the well, snakes. four species of sea snakes have forked tongues, and they are completely ocean-going. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah. I did my little research on that one. So yeah, there is an example, an extant example. Yeah, the only question is whether it's actually usable or not. You know, in, in the air, I mean, it, it senses, right. you know, the water is full of all kinds of things. So, yeah. right. so that's, that's still a question, but uh, undoubtedly they still had a forked tongue. Right. Well, since, since we're drilling down on, on uh, Mosasaurus here a bit, the relationship with uh, monitor lizards, Komodo dragons, and snakes, and that jaw structure that you're talking about, I... I I loved reading in the book, we were talking about how it ratcheted, ratcheted things back. He said, try extending your arms out in front of you. And then the only way to really bring something back to you is you've got to flex, you know, your elbows. Your, your elbows. Yeah. So you're literally pulling something, the prey back in because they also had an extra set of teeth on their palate. The, the, uh, uh, roof of the mouth, called? yeah. What are so those called? The pterygoid uh, teeth. And that's so, spelled P-T-E-R. Yeah. Like everything else in paleontology. Yeah, Y-G-O-I-D, yeah, parag right. paragoid. But would that uh, hinging jaw, that lower jaw, uh, also allow for you to swallow bigger things like a snake? Yeah, exactly. We've got pretty good evidence with a specimen that uh, Charlie Sternberg found 1918 or so that included a medium-sized plesiosaur, polycotylid, as stomach well, contents. And so it's more than likely it was swallowed pretty much whole and partially digested by the time the, the Mosasaur died for whatever reason. They didn't chew their food and they weren't, yeah. most of them had conical teeth. They're not tearing teeth like sharks. So they weren't really capable of tearing things up the way that you would envision a shark biting a chunk out of something. They had to swallow it whole, but is there, I know there's been conjecture as to, do they have a common ancestor with monitor lizards and snakes or do snakes, what's the relationship there? I think the three groups had a common ancestor, but that's unclear. I was able to describe a very early Mosasaur vertebra from here in Kansas that would have put their beginnings back about a hundred million years, and but they were land-dwelling lizards or shore-dwelling lizards at that point. And like marine iguanas are today, they live on the land and they go into the the ocean to feed. Right, right. Well, in the mosasaurs' cases, they took it one step further. They stayed in the ocean. They began to uh, uh, adapt in various ways, and one of those ways is giving live birth to their young. Uh, Williston was was very sure that somehow mosasaurs drug themselves up on the beach someplace like a turtle and laid eggs, but that just simply didn't happen. One, they their skeletons by the time they involved evolved into 
what we considered to be the, the Moses or body plan today, they just simply didn't have the, the strength to move on land. Is there any evidence of live birth? Don't they have evidence of ichthyosaur live birth? Certainly. They've got very good evidence of that. Yeah. So is there the same similar evidence of Mosasaur live birth? The Schoenhofen uh, shale or limestone in Germany has got several instances where they actually have a, a mother ichthyosaur in the process of giving birth. The babies are leaving the mother when right. she died and uh, was preserved on the bottom. And so they've got that. And we've got one plesiosaur from Kansas, a right. polycotylid that Bonner family actually found. Yeah, it's in Los Angeles, yeah. Right, includes a a smaller individual. And there's some contention of whether that that was a, a single baby or that was, you know, something associated Kinder. with that, that plesiosaur. But, <laughs> but there's no doubt that they gave live birth to. Wow. What about the mosasaurs? Is there evidence of a mosasaur with? Yes, yes. One, um, we find we find baby mosasaur bones out there, but in South Dakota there is a uh, a plyoplated carpus specimen that I actually helped dig on that had is that the a remains. Mosasaur? Yeah, yeah, it's related to what we have here in Kansas, only more evolved, you know, years later from the Pierre Shale, but it had the remains of five babies inside. Wow. Oh. Okay. So did they come out head first? I assume they did, but we the, the remains weren't that complete. We had, you know, the thing had been scavenged by sharks, but they found five, at least five of the quadrate bones from small bosasaurs inside the body of the, the mother. And, you know, basically assumed that was it. For some reason, that paper, you know, I knew about it in the 1990s and it never got published. And I don't, I still don't understand why, but... But I was there and I saw the evidence, too. The Mosasaur, though, is the largest marine reptile, right? Mm -hmm. mm, no. No. Probably an ichthyosaur. Yeah. But oh, some okay. of the, the big pliosaurs okay. were, were also huge. Uh, and, okay, I mean, you know, I'm sorry. Plurodon, Let me one. rephrase that. Uh, the largest marine lizard reptile? Well, it would be the largest marine lizard. We, we, can't, we can't group ichthyosaurs or plesiosaurs with mosasaurs right. are completely different, right. separate kinds of reptile. Okay. But, okay, back but, to the, uh, you pointed a model. May I, 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 I'm going to take uh, a photo of this. So I'm going to take a screenshot right now. You're mm -hmm. holding a, uh, and, and Mike, why don't you just go like that with your finger? Mike, because I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah, uh, and, one uh, of my unfavorite uh, uh, Mosasaur characters. Know. Yeah, I just took that photo. So that has a tail that is uh, vertical, like a... A shark-like tail. Shark. Uh, yeah. So let me, let me just jump in before we pose it to Mike, in that uh, when animals return to the ocean, when we've got vertebrates that go back to the oceans, they're... they're limbs become fins. Basically, we see that in the mosasaurs and the ichthyosaurs. But the longer period of time that they stay in the ocean, they get more streamlined. And there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not mosasaurs had a kind of ichthyosaur style of tail, more of a, a, a tail fluke. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, I have seen some fossils that have some beautifully preserved skin and as you've dug in these fossils that have mm -hmm. actually the scales these minute right. scales that, of mosasaurs 
but I know you have some some strong feelings about this. What what well, do you think about that tail fluke? There's exactly one specimen in the world from Lebanon of a mosasaur, a, hadra, uh, a mosasaurine mosasaur, with a what looks like a tail fluke, and it's just it's basically uh, a lighter area preserved in the matrix around the, the vertebra. Around it looks the like organic vertebra. material. It could be, yeah, you could interpret it. I think that's been interpreted that way. But there's no bone structure. There's no nothing that, that there's nothing extending off of the, the tops of the dorsal vertebra, the caudal vertebra there. Okay, I'll accept that one specimen. But well, what about this? But the two choices are just a regular lizard like tail or an actual swimming fluke, is what you're posing yeah. here, right? Well, uh, they were envisioned, with, or I've envisioned them as having a, a broad flat tail that swim back and forth uh and there's the other contention there is the there's a um downturn in yeah, the tail right and that's where they they put this fluke all the time well okay that can be documented I, that can be measured uh and has been so that that is real but the other contention other suggestion on that is that when you look at the force of, of moving this tail back and forth and the idea that it, it is also producing a downward force, not only just a side to side to move forward, but a downward force to keep the animal's head above water. So there's, there's some issues there that that downward force over the life of a mosasaur, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, would also tend to deform the vertebra and actually what they call keystone them in such a way as to turn the tail downward. Hmm. Okay, uh, that's it's another explanation. I've because done wait, are these skeletons found with the tail kinked downward? Oh yeah, that's that's a fact. That's not some sort of a death mm -hmm. pose. No, but it's- The bones are shaped that way, but- It's really pretty minimal. It, it's only a few degrees right. over a, a series of four or five vertebra and then it straightens out again. In ichthyosaurs, if you look at some of the evidence in Europe, as, as an ichthyosaur in this particular species, and I don't have the species off the top of my head, they've got a whole ser life series of these, growth series of, of ichthyosaurs. And as the ichthyosaur ages, the tail vertebra turn downward and the tail oh. fluke gets bigger. So it's oh, the in, lifetime in life? of an animal, yeah. not of an evolutionary... Right. Uh... Well, and the animal gets bigger and... You know, he needs a bigger, he needs more thrust back there or something over time, but the tail gets actually bigger and the downturn gets bigger. So huh. until we know, until we find something with, with much better uh, information, well, we don't know. I got to say, I, I love these kinds of discussions and arguments in, in the Mosasaur world and in the paleo world. But now we had a previous guest, Louise Chappett at the LA mm -hmm. County Museum. And there's that <laughs> okay. specimen that Marion Bonner, I think, dug up that is in on display there at, yeah. at the museum. And he was, I think he was part of the paper on this tail yeah. fluke. Yeah, uh, Robin O'Keefe and, and Chappie did it, yeah. So that's got a fluke too, apparently. Wait, they say, they assert... talking about? What has a fluke? What are you talking about? It's, what got, it's, got, it's got the tail. No, that's, that's, a, that's, a ple that's a polycotylid plesiosaur. Okay, plesiosaur. And no, it didn't have a tail. Well, we don't know about plesiosaurs. I see sometimes they recreate them with a, with a tail fluke, but... There's nothing in their vertebra that suggests that they were wagging their tail. All of they were they were flying through the water with their paddles. 
Right. The, the, now, the speaking of paddles, well, speaking of paddles, the front and rear limbs, when I look at the skeletons, they show five distinct digits. I mean, very long, yeah. distinct digits. Yet reconstructions show paddles. Was there any indication of finger movement within the paddle or were they with these paddles rigid? I mean, it, it, it depends on the mosasaur or on the plesiosaur and the plesiosaurs. There's no no evidence of movement. But when you get into mosasaurs like Tylosaurus that have a skeleton that is really cartilaginous, you see a separation in those things. Yeah. And it seems like they did have kind of a webbed pattern. Right. Now, I don't know why that means individual movement, but they at least had webbing. And I've seen a specimen of a KU that has, you can see the webbing between the toes. Right. But that may have been a little different. Those are, as a Tylosaurus, as big he is, is a fairly old and primitive Mosasaur, or an early Mosasaur. Right. And they may have been doing something with a little different with those paddles, as opposed to the later Mosasaurs like Mosasaurus and Pliopladicarpus that had a had paddles that were pretty solid all the way to the end. And there's some evidence that Plotosaurus in California was actually becoming more ichthyosaur-like oh, with its paddles and actually starting to to fly through the water with the paddles rather than right. just hold it back against their sides. And Doesn't a Liploridon fly through the water the, with yeah, alternating Plurodon. paddles? There's a the, the rear yeah. and the front paddles are the same size, and they they pretty much the same size, and, and they fly the rather than uh, right Abs dog yeah. paddle, I guess. Right. Well, that was you know initially you see some of the reconstructions, particularly with long neck elasmosaurs. With these flippers that are, are duck-like paddles or something, they're they're paddling their way through the water, and that's there's no. I think I no first saw there. this in in Walking with Dinosaurs is where yeah. I first saw the the yeah. flying yeah. through the water, the Lyplerodon. Yeah. Well, before we turn to the short-necked pliosaurs, I just was wondering before we leave the mosasaur story there, how big did they get, Mike? Well, don't watch Jurassic World. Oh, was that eating a great white? Was that the mosasaur? Uh, Mosasaur is jumping out, coming up out of the, yeah. the pool in front About of the crowd. Feet right. long. Yeah, no, they, the maximum we've got, and we've got skeletal evidence for them, particularly in, in Europe, is that the biggest Tylosaurus or biggest Mosasaurus may have reached. 60 or 65 feet wow um these things grew through and through their entire life very slow much slower at the end but they once they were no longer subject to being eaten by somebody else they just continued to grow and a few of them uh got very very large Wow. Um, so bigger than a school bus. Yeah, 65 yeah, 60 feet. 60 or 60 feet. 60 but you say Europe, so they were worldwide and all the seas worldwide oh, yeah. that we know yes. of? Yes. Yeah. All yeah. these marine yeah. reptiles were in all the oceans? Yep. Not yeah. just the interior yeah. seaway? Oh, no. No, the interior seaway was a sideshow, more or less. Although yeah. there's <laughs> some evidence that a lot of them have evolved here and spread outward oh. through the Gulf of right. Mexico. There is that uh, new uh, screw tooth one from Morocco. It's got the strange teeth. Wait, I it looked was, that uh, up, Ray. I couldn't see what you meant by screw tooth. Stelodens. Stelodens. Yeah, Stelodens. I looked it up on Wikipedia. I didn't. 
seem to see anything that are you googling that right now it's from morocco no. and it, there was a paper on it earlier i, I looked this at it year. earlier in in my exhaustive research on mike's yeah <laughs> turns out it's a screwdriver shaped tooth not a screw toothed so there you go put that in your toolbox certainly by the end of the cretaceous mosasaurs were doing all kinds of crazy things and you've got one evidence yeah globidens uh, he was a clam eater yeah. yeah, and then you've got some with blade-like teeth that look like shark teeth. And you've got um, Gogosaurus or something down from Africa that looks more like a crocodile. He's actually got incisors up front that interlock. Really? On the outside of the jaws. A mosasaur? And, uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a mosasaur, yeah. Wow. But not What's... very many of them, but they're, uh, they're, they were found, or it was found in Africa. Uh, so they're experimenting. I think uh, Mike Paulsian has, has got some stuff off the coast of Africa recently here. that has been at the Smithsonian and so on. All kinds of diversity spreading everywhere. And then bang at the end, you know, the oceans die and so do the, the, the mosasaurs. Well, did they replace the pliosaurs? That's the short neck. There's a good segue there. So the big, uh, big short neck, like Lyopleurodon, and I want to get to the story of Brachycinius becoming Megacephalosaurus. <laughs> okay, so, wait, 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 hold on a second. So, is there a time difference between Pliosaurs and Mosasaurs? No. Yeah. They actually they, they existed at the same time. They overlap here, here in Kansas by about two million years. Megacephalosaurus and the early Tylosaurus and Platycarpus Mosasaurus, when they were much smaller, it's likely they were subject to predation from. Uh, megacephalosaurus so okay. there's about a two million year window in there where they'd have been been the little guys on the block but then the megacephalosaurus died off and went extinct and mosasaurus just blossomed was a megacephalosaurus so they, a pliosaur yes yeah it was a big okay. pliosaur great which well, is a plesiosaurus uh, like with a short neck <laughs> yes a big head yes. with a short neck, yeah. Let me Go set ahead. this up a little bit here. Brachycinius leucasi. Uh, when I first visited the Sternberg Museum, there's this massive skull that's on display there. It's uh, it's five feet long, almost right. five feet long. Right. And it was it was dubbed Brachycinius. And I went to town drawing all these big pliosaurs in there with the mosasaurs. As we said, they overlapped. But then years later, you get to looking at that skull, and I've done all these drawings calling it Brachycinius, and then you looked at it closer, Bruce Schumacher worked with you, and you described, you realized it had to be a different genus, and there was even bigger skulls out there. Can you yeah. give us a little bit of that? Well, a lot of things happened. One, it was never really identified, positively identified as Brachycinius. Uh, the, the type skull, type uh, species of Brachycinius also comes from Kansas. Comes up. Well, we're talking a mosasaur here, right? No, we're back. No. We're please pliosaurs. Why well, you guys are jumping between marine uh, reptiles here? There was a segue there. So the pliosaurs, okay. which is a type of plesiosaur, right. is replaced by the mosasaurs. Okay. Right. So go ahead. Okay. The original Brachycinius was dug up by Charlie Sternberg and sent to Marsh back in the 1890s. Ended up in the Smithsonian. And that was the, the one and only that we knew about from Kansas. And then in, in 1950, a couple of shark tooth hunters in Russell County came across this big five-foot skull in yeah. Russell County. And they notified George Sternberg, and he went out and dug it up. And actually, in his notes, he thought it was a big mosasaur at the time. But it's, it's down in the Fairport Chalk. It's too early, really, for, for, the, for a big guy. 
but anyway, it sat in our museum. He, he prepared it and put it on display, pour, uh, actually cleaned it up on both sides and then put it into plaster. So the, the mouth parts, the palate of that skull was not visible from that point on, from the 1950s on. I found uh, some photographs. George Sternberg was also a photographer and he documented some of his work in, in good photography. And I found a photograph of the palette of the skull, black and white photograph, and showed it to Bruce Schumacher. And he said, whoa, this is different. This is, you know, this is not Brachycinius. So we got permission to take the skull out of the plaster tomb. Wow. And clean it up and cast it and be able to examine the thing to the to the details that we needed. In the meantime, I found parts of a larger skull up at the University of Nebraska uh, in their museum that had been dug up in, in northern Kansas, I don't know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, put in a, a museum tray and forgotten. But it turns wow. out it's about 25% larger than this. That is it's not a complete skull, but it, the jaws indicate it would have been 25% larger. So that that's cool. And we ended up being able to sell that as a, a new genus and species of plasaur. Megacephalosaurus, uh, easily as big as La Pluridon, isn't it? Oh, uh, no, I think you're talking oh. Pluridon. You're talking seven, eight, nine foot jaws. Oh, okay. Was right. It was also Jurassic in age from True. Europe. Kind of an indication that pliosaurs started a, a decline in numbers and size from the Jurassic on through the first half of the Cretaceous. Uh, they were actually went extinct right at the, the beginning of the late Cretaceous. Only to be replaced, enter the Mosasaur. I have yeah. a question about the Western Interior Seaway. W when did it begin? Was it mid-Cretaceous and lasted for like 10, 20 million years? Probably right at the beginning of the early Cretaceous, and by beginning, I mean it. Kansas was dry at the time, it, uh, through the completely through the end of Jurassic. It was kind of a barren wasteland out here. We have no Jurassic or Triassic rocks in the state. Right. Uh, there was literally no deposition going on, so it was hot, dry, and eroding. About so we're the talking 145 million years ago was the Jurassic Cretaceous boundary. Okay, so uh, toward the end of the early, well, at some point in there, what you have is the Rocky Mountains are beginning to uplift through Western North America, and that's creating a flex in the crust yeah. of, of the middle of North America. So you have the seaway coming down from Canada and coming back up from the Gulf of Mexico and eventually meeting over Kansas about 110 million years ago. We're not really sure, but that's the right. Kiowa formation. So that's yeah, mid mid Cretaceous, right? Right. Well, yeah, it would be the middle of the Cretaceous. That's you know a shallow, muddy sea, but it's got all kinds of sea life, uh, including uh, plesiosaurs, uh, the the other fish and turtles, and then that gives way to to a, a broader, deeper expanse of the Western Seaway beginning with the late Cretaceous uh, about 100 billion years ago. Would it be about a 500 miles wide at its widest? And yeah, how deep? that'd probably be a, be a good guess. Yeah, well, it would depend. It flexes. That, that's the other sure. thing that's going on is sea levels were up and down during that time period. 
And there's actually a paper out that says the evolution of some of the Triceratopsian dinosaurs in Montana was driven by the fact that uh, the sea levels would, would, or the sea would shrink and they had all this land to come out on and evolve. And then the sea levels would, would go wide again and drown out a big portion of the population, basically oh. driving the evolution of them right. and probably hadrosaurs along the seaway there. But in Kansas, you know, it was mostly just a matter of getting deeper or shallower during those times because it, it, it pretty much covered Kansas during most of the, the late Cretaceous. Right. Right. There was an anoxic event in the late Cretaceous. What what caused that? The bottom was almost apparently during the deposition of chalk was almost always anoxic. Very few creatures capable of living down there because of the low oxygen. Right. So we always dealt with that. But the upper surface was sunlit, clear water, full of diatoms and other, you know, fossils that are algae that are both producing oxygen and producing the basic level of food source for everything else in the ocean. So you've got all of these things come combining to make the seaway very rich and plentiful in, in life forms and a lot of evolution going on during that time. And they die off to become all the layers of chalk. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Billions and billions, billions to use Carl Sagan's yeah. uh, <laughs> analogy there of these tiny little microscopic shells settling down to the bottom. And not only creating the chalk, but also creating the, the, the situation that preserves these fossils, including mosasaur right. skin, things like that, very, very well over time. It's funny, when you see the great white cliffs of Dover, and you see how large they are, it gives you an incredible impression of that is all, that's the same thing we're talking about. Well, that's that's the thing when you get out to western Kansas, it's stunning. You're driving along as wheat fields, and then suddenly when you get into the badlands there, it is, uh, yeah, chalk. And basically, the chalk rock is ancient plankton, just piles and piles of yeah. ancient plankton. Well, but algae, yeah, algae. The well, basically, yeah, the the cocolithophores. Uh, cocolithophores, easy for you to say. Yeah, the shells, calcium carbonate. Yeah. The neat uh, thing about England is you've got you yet to see that vertical exposure. There's no yeah. place in Kansas that you can see it, and we've got right. 600 foot of chalk here too. Right. Well, the uh, the Monument Rocks and the Jerusalem Rocks State Park is pretty impressive, the mm -hmm. cliffs that are there, but made of the chalk. But one of the things I've always wondered about, and I'm holding up a pteranodon here. Oh, we're going to get mm -hmm. into flying reptiles. I wanted to ask about this because we have this uh, this shallow sea that's about 500 miles wide, expands into tracks. Maximum over Kansas was probably about 600, but as you go farther east, it's more than likely it's shallowed out fairly rapidly toward the right. eastern part of the state. Right. But as you get to Colorado, then you've got a, this geological foreland deep that may have been a couple of thousand foot deep there really? in front of the yeah. Oh, I didn't know that, that the western side of the WIS was that deep. Yeah. Well, again, it, it's geological in nature, but as the, the mountains were uplifted, the crust folded away from the collision. And you get this deep area up close. Oh. And, you know, that's where some of our natural gas fields, the Huga natural gas field, and some of the other big deposits, well, helium and other things. Isn't that where the giant Inoceramus clams come from? There's, the some, there's some nine foot long shells of Inoceramus there right. against, uh, <laughs> against the Rocky Mountain front range there. Okay. And Ray's holding up this bird. You're itching to talk about, this. sorry, <laughs> okay. not a bird, All right. this, this uh, flying reptile. <laughs> this is a pteranodon, a pterodactyl, a pterosaur. 
And so we have this wide, expansive, shallow sea. But yet, there in the middle of Kansas, we have these beautifully preserved uh, pterosaurs. We have Trinodon and we have Nyctosaurus, which is a crazy-looking beast into <laughs> itself, which I do want to ask you about that. But what are they doing out there in the middle of the ocean? Uh, these are very lightly boned creatures. They're Can eating. we imagine? What do you mean they're doing? They're well, I, well, no. Well, let me. How do they eat, Dave? Are they sitting on the surface oh, of the ocean? Right. Are they dabbling? Or... Are they skimming? Because that takes you have to have a weirdly shaped jaw to skim. Are they diving down? But are they capable? Do you think they were capable of actually kind of sitting on the surface and? What's their lifestyle? That's that's one of the pressing questions of our time. We don't know. Now, based on their stomach contents, we know they ate small fish. And we have yeah. several examples of that, along with birds like Hesperornis and so on. But how they were doing it is a real interesting question because that, as you mentioned, that beak is so lightly constructed. I can't imagine them skimming it through the water and ramming into a fish. I've never well, seen a... Uh, a pterosaur beak that's damaged. Right. Oh. And I've got one here that, um, you know, the end of the beak, it comes out to a ne almost a needle point. It's like the sharp end of a pencil. That's crazy. But so How big were these actually, pterosaurs? I, uh, 25, 30 foot uh, that's the biggest. That's the biggest male. You mean these are, the are these are the Quetzalcoatls? It's pronounced Quetzalcoatlus, not Quetzalcoatls. Pterosaurs, pterodactyl, trinodon. Well, well, hold on. But, Tell me, real, I'm a newbie here. Tell me the difference between okay. these giant quetzalcoatls. That's not a pterosaur. That's a pterodon. It is a pterosaur. Okay, okay. Pteranodon is the genus and species, or the genus name of a large marine reptile found first here in Kansas in 1870 by, by flying uh, reptile. Flying reptile by Marsh right. on his expeditions out right. here. Uh, sometime later, they also discovered. Nyctosaurus, which is, has about an eight foot wing spread right. maximum. These are, you know, this is only about a six or eight million year period during the late Cretaceous when those were the dominant species over the, the Western interior seaway. We don't see anything else. How many different flying species. reptiles were there as far as? Oh, just uh, around the world. Literally no, no, hundreds. no. In the Western interior seaway. Just two. Just, just two. two. Oh, uh -huh. but that's all, we're only looking at a you know a very short period geologically, six eight million years. Sure. That, and they were the dominant species here. We don't see anything else. And they were all well. And the other thing, they were the only ones that are flying over the Western Interior Seaway in numbers enough to fall and die and and be preserved here. We don't know what was going on on the land. And there were certainly other pterosaurs there adapted to feeding on insects and other prey. So these are animals that died out to sea and... and well, that's what I'm asking about. How did yeah. they end up out in the ocean like that? Yeah. So they were either feeding or they were blown down or they simply fell out of the sky and died. Well, but, but, but what I did and one of this, this big chalk drawing that I did when I just went back and I worked in the Planet Ocean book, which ended up being an exhibit, I drew... I, dared, I talked to Chris Bennett, right? I think. Mm -hmm. Chris, yeah. Chris, who said, you know, it's okay, Ray, yes. if you draw, he is a pterosaur expert and right. did his PhD, I think, on Tranodon. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, so I asked him, could I, could I draw them actually swimming? Could they be at the surface? They've dived, dove down into the water. Like a cormorant, you mean? Well, like a, like a seagull sitting out there in the, in the yeah, ocean. Right. And so in that image, I dared to draw them swimming around. So 
Once again, I've got my plesiosaurs with their necks out of the water, but I've also got trended on swimming right. because I like to break the rules. So, well, we don't know what the rules are here. <laughs> it's quite possible there are there are all kinds of marine birds today that dive into the water or somehow yeah. underwater. They may just stick that. He may have floated on the surface and just stuck that big head under it under the yeah, water. Yeah, that's kind of what I envisioned. Uh, and you know, we, we had huge schools of fish, bait balls, like yeah. you. Uh, like you do in modern oceans, and it may have just been simple to land in the middle of one of those and yeah. you know fill your mouth. I don't see them diving into the water; they they are yeah. simply too lightly constructed. Right. Nyctosaurus is a crazy one. Yeah, it's a flying, uh, Dave, that, flying reptile that it is a pterosaur, and uh, Nyctosaurus is the genus name. Amazing pole sticking up out of its head, <laughs> and then another one coming out, kind of the back of the pole. Almost like a fork from the side yeah, view. Like a sail almost. Like it's a, a yeah. T-shape. Yeah. yeah. Or an L-shape. What do you think would be the evolutionary reason for for that? Well, again, like the single specimen of a mosasaur with a tail fluke. We've only got <laughs> two of these skulls of, right. of nyctosaurs with they a fancy stick out there. Are they broken or are they completely what? intact? They're pretty much intact. One of them is broken. One of them is is perfect almost. Right. But they were found by the same guy in the same part of the of the, of the county out there, and so you know, and it ended up in a private collection, and so you know, Chris Bennett was able to photograph them, but because they're not publicly available, he was. Oh, busy. they're not. No, they're, well, they're on oh. display, but they're not available. In some for, guy's living room. Well, in a, a little museum down at Brazos, Texas, I think, but the last I saw. But again, there, there's qu some question about whether they're available to for other researchers to study. And I've, you know, I know the guy that collected them. I've and I've seen seen his work. And I trust him real well. But it's just, it's hard to explain the coincidences that you know, after all this time, and we've got several dozen nyctosaur specimens, partly complete. This guy all of a sudden finds two more with these with these funny crests. crazy. Ah, Wait, there, so, are you saying it's possible that could they could be made up? I don't think it's possible, but that's always going to be a question until you know we can get in there and somebody examine them with X-ray material, right? Uh, or other, you know, all the technology that we've got today that we didn't have. So back these when could they be faked found. then. Again, Maybe. I don't think so, but they, yeah, right. but anything is possible, right, I right. suppose. <laughs> oh, the dear, other, well. But there's been several dozen of these things found since the 1870s. Right. And a fairly complete specimen. There's a nice one up at the University of Nebraska. And there's no head crest. And there's no head, there's something. But the other thing that we know about in pterosaurs in general is that it was only the males that had these big honking crests. Even, right. even, uh, Pteranodon longiceps that was discovered here first in the 1870s got the big males have got a huge triangular crest off the back of the skull. Right. The females don't have a crest. Right. Even the juveniles, and my wife found a juvenile pteranodon longiceps skull. It doesn't have a crest, it, but it's fairly large. It's too too big to be a female, but uh, it's not old enough or mature enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that it developed sexually or whatever to the point that it it developed this sexual display, if you right. will.
Is there obvious sexual dimorphism besides? Well, that's the only reason, reason, you know, we have the only reason we can think of. Right. And that occurs fairly, you know, commonly in male birds and sure, various other sure. animals. That's, you know, it's competition sort of thing. My crest is bigger than yours. So there. <laughs> my first vertebrate fossil that I found with Chuck Bonner when I was out on the land with him, looking at my first real fossil hunt with somebody who knew what they're doing uh, was a, a trinodon. So just cool. going into a gully. Cool. It, what, what did you so, find? Uh, it was a leg bone basically sticking out of the, out of the side of the uh, the chalk. And wow. uh, I said, what's this? And Chuck said, well, that's a, I think you found a pterosaur. Trinodon. Yeah, and it went into the cliff and it kind of stopped at about the hip bone and that was it. There's a lot of the skeletal material out there is like that. Oh, yeah. Well, a pteranodon bone is hollow to begin with. It's like two layers of cardstock when you yeah. when you dig it. Yeah. And it's it's all flattened together and fractured and really difficult to... Oh, so very little deposition will cause these bones to... Crunch, oh, yeah. Erosion, erosion eats them up. Right. You know, the, in life, they were hollow. They had struts, bone struts oh, in, right. the, in, the, in the interior. For strength. But they were basically inflated. The pteranodon... The lung system had tubes that went into the major bones right and so they were inflated with air throughout the life of the animal so yeah. were sauropods well that was you know that was a, a reptilian adaptation that yeah. worked why not yeah. and you know they're big enough so we've got these things the big males are 22 24 foot wing spread you know had bones that were strong enough to allow them to fly and get off the ground and probably fly for hours over the seaway. Is there evidence of the skin flap between the finger bones and the legs? To uh, not allow... not with pteranodon, but with other pterosaurs, yes, they've got they've got preservation, particularly in again in Germany and the Sandhofen. Some indication that they were covered with fibrils, yeah, not, not feathers, but fibrils right. that that may have some insulating characters or, you know, something we don't understand, but. Sure, but they were—they weren't just bats like bat wings. It's just pure a pure layer of tissue. They had—they actually yeah. had some covering. I want to ask you real quick: yeah. just what's the coolest fossil you've ever found, Mike? Oh my! Oh my! <laughs> what's the one that's like, you know, when your life is flashing before your eyes? It's going to be that one. That... The coolest fossil I've ever worked with is a four-foot-long Tylosaurus skull. I, unfortunately, I didn't find it, but I went in, it was, it was being poached and I went in oh. and helped the family get it out of the ground and get it prepared for the museum out at Oakley. So that's probably the coolest one. Cause that's got, as it turns out, it's published now, but it's got the complete scleral ring around wow. the eyeball. And as I was preparing this thing, the eye was looking up at me, you know, it's kind of, Kind of spooky a little bit there, but you can see where exactly where the eyeball was in the in the living animal. Did these marine reptiles have sclerotic rings like an ichthyosaur? The bone, yes. the bony. Yes, oh, exactly. The mosasaurs some... and tylosaurs and plesiosaurs all had that. I don't know about plesiosaurs. I I think they did, but I don't, I don't recall right. seeing any specimens with, uh, with that preserved. In... Well, I do too. I take that back. Sticks st skull at Ku has got part of the scleral ring in place. So it's good. And so what is that, that about? Yeah, what is yeah, that what about having a bone to uh, focus the eye? Well, was it for focusing or was it for protection against outside water pressure? Oh. I don't think anybody knows for sure. 
Right. But they it continues into uh, living animals today, living lizards today have the same thing. So it may oh, have been more do. of the Komodo dragons for one. Right. But yeah. They, it's they behind should. the eye, though. It's, it supports it's, the eye from behind, right? No, it's within the eye. No, it's it's actually in front. It's at the is eye is front? behind the, the ring. Yeah. It's a, so it's uh, it's complex. I don't know. If you look at uh, look at a modern owl, the eyes of a modern owl, and you'll see the same structure. But it, it's in their case, it's probably part of the the visual acuity, being able to focus. It apparently these are overlapping plates. The scleral ring is composed of. 14 or 15 plates to make the ring and they, they flex between so you get you get them sliding over one another a little bit to allow the, the opening to, to widen and close like that so I'm gonna have to look into sclerotic rings a little bit <laughs> yeah. uh, and so find out more about that with an you're owl. gonna look into them yeah the pun was with me it's always intended Hey, Mike, it's been really fun talking, man, and, and I'm, I'm going to come find you in Derby, Kansas, because I've got a place in Lindsborg just up the, the road yeah, from you there. we'll come find you. Yes, please do. Come see my Dakota Sandstone. I want you to check it out. Uh, I bought beachfront property in Kansas, is what I like to say. <laughs> but oh, if yeah. you could go back in time, Mike, what exciting epoch, what perfect period, what exquisite era would you go back to, and what would you want to see? You can't say late Cretaceous because that's oh, where your field of come on, that's Dude. where you study. Oh, Dude. come on. No, that, that would that hurts. Okay. Push back, uh, Mike. Push back. Push back. Well, to eliminate the late Cretaceous, I will what? say the, the middle Jurassic when when we've got all kinds of other marine reptiles, the the ichthyosaurs that were the fish lizards that were all over the world, the big pliosaurs, Liapleurodon. All kinds of other marine creatures that there are no longer around today, but that would have been a fantastic environment, including the ammonites and other sure. giant shelled cephalopods Gotta see those. out there. So, yeah, it would have been a fascinating place to to observe. Although you probably wouldn't want to be swimming there because no, you no. Let me just ask you this: since we know you love the Lake Cretaceous and the Western Interior Seaway, you get to look at one creature alive. What is it? In that oceans, the boring Hesperonis. No, I mean, <laughs> well, you've, you've thought a lot about was, these creatures. You thought well, a lot about all which, these creatures. Which is a tooth? Is the last toothed bird? It's one of the last toothed birds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the toothed birds would have been a very interesting observation because you have Ichthyornis, which is small enough to fly and still has a mouthful of very sharp teeth. You've got Hesperonis, which is pretty much very, you know, a a Cretaceous penguin, but he's swimming with his feet, not with his wings. Right. And I'd like to go back a little farther and figure out when Hesperornis lost their wings. Because, you know, we don't have any fossils from the early Cretaceous or the late Jurassic that indicate an ancestor. Uh, but somewhere along the line, Hesperornis just gave up on flying. Does it fly through the water like a penguin? No, a, a, fly, a, a penguin actually uses its wings to fly to through fly. the water yeah. and doesn't use its feet. Hesperornis uses its feet and doesn't have oh. any wings left. It's huh. its upper limb bone, the humerus, is you know toothpick about yeah, that long, and wow. that's it. It would have it may have supported you know a fleshy appendage, but it certainly wasn't useful right. for anything. So I interrupted you. What would be the thing you'd like to see alive? You led the witness alive. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my! You I don't could know see it in, in, in an aquarium. Well, I, I would love to see a, a mosasaur. Okay, and, glad, there you go. and and answer the question of the tail fluke. I don't. Ah. I don't necessarily deny that, a, that mosasaurs eventually evolved into a tail with a tail fluke, but I suspect that didn't happen with Tylosaurus and and Platycarpus and the ones I observe here in beginning of the or the late Cretaceous here in Kansas. The other thing you mentioned scales earlier. Yeah. The scales on a 15-foot a mosasaur, the Tylosaurus that, that Snow found back in the 1870s, are the same size as you find on a garter snake that's about eight inches long. Yeah. And so uh, the scales would be useless in the ocean for, for something that big. I think they were slowly evolving out of them. They evolved out of feet, you know, with, with uh, fingers and, and toes into paddles. They evolved other things like live birth. They they were probably homeothermic uh, in terms of uh, internally warmed up uh, or whatever. Warm-blooded. Warm-blooded, that would work. And, you know, they did all kinds of neat stuff, and it would be nice to be able to answer some of those questions. Well, I, I, I just imagine this, this massive beast, you know, 30, 40 feet long, those tiny scales glistening in the water, the color patterns on them must have been pretty incredible, too, either camouflage, but snake-like, monitor lizard-like. And to behold those beasts would have been extraordinary. And so I'm right there with you. Uh, but you could be the guy out in front in the water. I'll be behind you. <laughs> yeah. Kind of yeah, the front of the boat, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll be running the outboard motor. <laughs> okay, there you go. Mike, your distinguished career as a paleontologist in your book, Oceans of Kansas, has been acclaimed for bringing to light the rich paleontological heritage of Kansas and your accessible approach while sharing your findings and theories about the marine environment has kept interest alive. And this is what we want in this field. We want to keep it fun and interesting. So looking towards the future, what do you think are the most crucial challenges and obstacles for paleontology, especially in creating long-term public interest and community involvement? Ooh. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, public education to me is, is the biggest hurdle right now. I have, I'm really concerned about the, the general level of knowledge that most people have about just life or modern life on our planet let alone all of the history all of the things that that led to what we you know that we, we experience today and that's part of the fascination in paleontology to me is being able to go back and envision what life must have been like millions of years ago and then somehow connect it to the, the fact that environment changes and species evolve and they also go extinct and you know, we're, we're kind of on the cusp of a dilemma here with climate change and a lot of other things that are going on that really we have little or no control over and we need to be paying attention to what's going on on our own planet from now on and the immediate future because uh, extinction is a serious business. Yeah, so better education. Yeah, uh, much better science education. You know, I don't want to get into the argument over STEM and, and the other technology stuff, but you know, the, the basic understanding that we're you know we're part of our environment. We've also been part of, of extinctions like nothing else that has been seen on this planet. 
Yeah. And we're we're really culpable and responsible for a lot of the damage that that is happening on the earth at this point. And that's yeah, that's scary. It's, it's, it's hard to we, measure that when you're shopping at Target. Yeah, yeah. Or shopping online, for that matter. <laughs> well, I got to say, Mike, that what you do with uh, your Oceans of Kansas book, which is a phenomenal resource, and your website too. Which, by the way, I hope there's some way you can keep that going which out is, there in Ray, the world. Uh, OceansofKansas.com, yeah. right? Yeah, OceansofKansas.com. It's a great resource, online resource. But what you're doing is you are fostering fascination for the natural world and the deep history of this planet, and you do it with your talks and your books and your you you. you you're out there, you got roadside geology books, you're out there with the people, you're interacting with kids, and uh, that's how, you, if you get them intrigued in what's going on around them, they're going to begin to care about it, and then they can actually begin to put our lives into context, you know, with yeah. the rest of the planet. So I actually, I hope that, that I'm doing my part of that. I, really I think you are, man. And oh, you are. You yeah. really are, so thank you so much, and uh, I guess maybe this is our goodbye. But okay, <laughs> thank well, you for being with it's, us. It's yeah. been fun. I enjoyed it. It's been it. fun and, and really uh, informative too. Thanks, guys. See you later. Boy, oh boy, marine reptiles. <laughs> yeah, I, I gotta apologize, Dave. I, we, I, you know, it's our chance to geek out, and you know, we are paleo nerds, and so Mike is a resource. And as you could tell, I've been thinking about Kansas oceans for a long time. Okay, I got confused with Tylosaur, Plesiosaur, Pliosaur, Pterosaur, Tranodon. Well, no, oh no, those are birds. I mean, sorry, well, those yeah. are flying reptiles, not birds. Those are flying reptiles. Well, it, and I'm sure everybody listening at home was also like, it, it's right. it's hard. And, a and that's looks like a giant, a skink lizard. Yes. So right with the big triangular we got, head. We got your three groups, right? Okay. You got your your mosasaurs, your ichthyosaurs, and your plesiosaurs, right? But there weren't any ichthyosaurs in the Lake Cretaceous and the WIS, were there? Not in the Western Ontario Seaway. Right. They do hold on into about the middle of the Cretaceous and then they're gone. Right. And so things like mosasaurs and plesiosaurs had replaced them. Sure. And so what was getting complicated there a little bit in the show is that within the plesiosaurs, there's the short neck plesiosaurs, they're called pliosaurs. Pliosaurs. Really long neck. The elasmosaurs, like elasmosaurs. Okay. And then there's the polycotylids, which are sort of. What? Yeah, it's another group, those? but they're short. They're, well, they're kind of more like the seal of uh, there's. They're smaller. Oh, they're smaller. They're smaller, right? Right. Yeah, okay. they're smaller, but they've also got uh, very long snouts for really picking at the fish. So they're they're smaller creatures, but they're short necked plesiosaurs. They're in that group, and sure. uh, as we were geeking out of mosasaurs, and within the mosasaurs, there's several genera. Many right. many a genus can be found within that, right. and then the species within that. But basically, in Kansas, there were three types, three big uh, genera of of mosasaurs there was the tylosaurs tylosaurus and then there was clodastes and the most common was platycarpus right okay so, and we never so got into all. sharks that were there was so yeah. many species of sharks during there the were lots time. of cool sharks turtles and and we didn't talk about the turtles and the turtles are the one marine reptile group that make it through the extinction they, they survived and they still yeah. exist today and all the others are gone didn't make it right Right. You know, if through the big asteroid event. That's because so. turtles can hide in their shells. 
I think that has something to do with it. They bring their homes with them. They bring their homes with them, but I think a lot of it had to do, too, with those eggs that were maybe up on the shore and buried. Ah, far away buried. Yeah, there you Unlike go. the others, which, which are giving live birth out birth, in the ocean. Right, that would right. be my guess, is yeah. that if you've got that protection, you're going to make it through the big sure. event. Sure, So. Very cool, man. Very cool. So much, so geek, so much geek. So much, <laughs> I love it. So much and, nerdism. Uh, and I have to thank my neighbor, Chuck. Chuck Menzel, who has so much construction going on. And he paused everything for the two hours that we're doing this. So thank what's you, Chuck. Chuck. What's he building over there, Dave? Oh, he's just redoing his beautiful property, which uh, when I moved in was a junkyard of old cars. And he took it over and cleaned it up. And it's just beautiful. All right. Well, I'll bet you need to take Bernie out for a little walk. There, yeah, I do. Like. I do. Here in beautiful yeah, Ojai, where it's blue skies in December and a temperature of 70 degrees, which is and here, 20 Celsius oh, oh, for those listening well, in the other parts of the world. It is uh, in the 40s here in the <laughs> atmospheric river of life <laughs> called Ketchikan, Southeast Alaska. But that's okay. You don't have to shovel rain because up in Juneau, it's snowing like the Dickens. Oh, there so, you go. You know, and so. what a great expectation that'll be. Oh, I see what you did there. All right, Ray. A pleasure. Right, we've uh, or please we've got a real good one coming up for the next one. So uh, we're going to... As always, i got yeah. some other guests yeah. coming up. Yeah. So, so Dave from Ojai, California, signing off. And Bernie saying goodbye, too. <laughs> There's Bernie and goodbye from Cape Town by the sea. See you, Ray. See ya. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. Don't you understand? I'm a paleo